Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm Sean Kane. This week it's Claire's birthday and we wanted to celebrate. So I was given the chance of choosing who I wanted to talk about on this podcast and I have chosen one of my all-time favourite authors for many, 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 many years and another one who I've only recently discovered but who has reanimated my interest in desire. You may be glad to hear. <laughs> How fabulous. Okay, so who's, who's your favourite author? Who's your all-time favourite? Well, the, the person that I have saved for this special occasion just for me is Sarah Paretsky. So I've been reading Sarah Paretsky for a very, very long time. I think I first encountered V.I. Warshawski, the famous She Who Shall mm. Always Be Named, uh, in about <laughs> 1982 or three. And I was a very, very young reporter working in South Wales. And I was also immersed. I, I really loved hard-boiled crime fiction. I had loved as a student and as a, and as a kid. And there suddenly here was this, this really tough Chicago detective coming in and, and sort of you know, taking on Philip Marlowe's shoes, basically. <laughs> oh, great. I've never read any of these books. Before, uh, I love Philip Marlowe. You'll have to. And one of the things about having a beloved long-running series is that you get to know the characters. And there's, as well as VI, there's her lodger who lives downstairs, who looks after her. And there's there's also Lottie, who's, who is this doctor. And one of the things that was going on, which was spoke very strongly also to me in the early 80s when we were you know, we were Thatcher's children, really. We were living in a very benighted time. Was There was this whole thing going on about public health in the novels. <laughs> Who has the right to get treated? And there's a very tough left wing, in a sense, in the terms in which we talked about in those days, politics underlying this, a sort of political conscience. Anyway, so whenever a new Warshawski novel turns up, I'm always worried that one of them's going to have died. Um, and it's a great delight to find that actually they've discovered a new member of the family in oh, this latest one. Okay, great. I was actually going to ask you how they age in terms of both the characters but also the politics. Is it set in the present day now? Yeah. So, yes, as Sarah says, it can be a challenge to write a series over such a long period when basically Lottie would be well, about 100 now if she was. <laughs> but yeah, they, they change and they, it's really interesting to see the, the similarities and the differences are also partly what the themes that get picked up. And, and um, Sarah is very political. She's always got her ear attuned to whatever the issues are of the day. So I sort of feel that if I were to go back, which maybe I might do in my dotage and start reading them all again, it would chart my journey, my political journey, as well as VI's political journey. <laughs> and I think that's something that having a favourite series can do for you. It can create a narrative to your life which is in parallel to your own. 
So yes, it was an enormous pleasure to meet her again. And the one thing that has happened since we met, very sadly, is that her husband, Courtney Wright, has died, who she talks about in this interview. So our thoughts are very much with Sarah. When she joined Claire in the studio, Sarah began with a reading from her latest novel, Shell Game. The day had been too long. Mr. Contreras, the first floor neighbor with whom I share the dogs, came out to collect them. When he started to talk about a visitor, I sketched a wave. Later, please. Ain't no later, doll. She's waiting for you in here. He jerked his head toward his front room. Says she's your niece. I didn't know you had any, but you don't seem like a con artist. I don't have any nieces, I said. If the woman were young and pretty, she could con my neighbor out of his undershorts. Auntie Vic? A woman, young, with hair the texture and color of corn silk, appeared behind Mr. Contreras. She looked at me doubtfully. Was I going to throw an orphan out into the howling gale? It was a good act. My dog Mitch trotted to her and rubbed his head against her thigh while Mr. Contreras buffeted her shoulder. Auntie Vic, I know it's been forever since I've seen you, but Uncle Dick... Reno? I stared at her doubtfully. I'm Harmony, Auntie Vic. Reno has disappeared. I'm sorry to hear that, I said politely. Hey, doll, that ain't no way to talk. Miss Harmony needs your help looking for her sis. Mr. Contreras glared at me, arms akimbo. Even Peppy, the golden retriever, looked at me mournfully. Please, can we talk about this in the morning? I was up all night looking at a murder victim in the western suburbs. But, Auntie Vic, tears sparkled on the ends of Harmony's lashes. This is serious. I flew here from Oregon because I knew Reno was in trouble, but when I got to her apartment, she was gone. So... This is fascinating in a way, this this novel. For people like me who are long-term watchers, I, I dread to say it, but I think I've been reading you since 1980-something, since the very, very beginning of The Eye. I don't I. think you should dread saying that at all. <laughs> I'm cheered to hear you say that. Yes, go Claire. So we know that The Eye was married briefly to a man called Dick, who was a bit of a dick, right. um, so disappeared from her life quite quickly. And um, suddenly these two nieces appear. Harmony, who we are introduced to in your reading just there, and her sister Reno, who who have had a very bad time in their childhoods. Yes, and poor things, their names, and their names are are the kind of names that people like their mother gave their children. Reno was conceived, she thinks, in Reno, Nevada, so she's named Reno, and Harmony was meant to patch the marriage together to bring Harmony back into their lives. And so here... On top of all their other troubles, having been raised in just truly dreadful, really having to raise themselves because their mother did drugs and sold them for drugs when they were quite young. And then they ended up landing on their feet sort of in the foster care system. They had a a reasonably happy outcome, but not until they were well into their tween years. Have we met them before? No, never. I didn't know they existed, but... 
you know, VI hasn't paid much attention to her ex-husband's life. It's so interesting. So, so because actually part of the point of the VI Wojcicki novels is this family she has, but the family she has consists of Mr. Contreras, who's her now 90-year-old lodger who lives downstairs with whom she shares the dogs, and Lottie, who is a doctor friend of hers. And we think of them as her family. But then, lo and behold, there's this other family that suddenly appears in what I think is the 20th VI novel. I think it's the 19th, but I'd have to waste time by counting on my Yeah, fingers. 19th or 20th anyway. Yeah, so I'm just really interested that suddenly at this very late stage, you introduce this other family for her. I had this desire to bring the ex-husband, Dick, back into the story, partly because he's he's so dreadful. And every now and then I feel the need to show him up, you know, high-end lawyer. But partly because the plot which revolves around some rather complicated billionaire tax avoidance, illicit money-making schemes. It required him to have a high-end, required my villain to have a high-end lawyer. And I don't know, I can't explain how the, the nieces came into the story. They just sort of did come into the story. Uh, but you also have a nephew of Lottie's who is... Who also appeared out of nowhere. So that wasn't such a surprise, though, because the short story collection that I did many years ago, VI for short, one of the stories in it features... Lottie has a brother who came with her from Vienna to London with the kinder transport right before the Second World War started. And after the war, when... Lottie got a fellowship in obstetrics in Chicago. Hugo, her brother, went to Montreal. And Montreal is kind of a center of the garment industry in North America, one of the centers. And he opened a bunch of high-end clothes shops there. And his da- one of his daughters shows up in VI for short. So that was a family that I already knew about. So interesting, because here we have this world that you've created that's been going now for too many years. And um, let's not count those years. (laughs) Let's just say I had brown hair when I started and it's completely white now. Then we come to the to the issue of age. And we know now that Mr. Contreras is in his 90s now. And you make that point. But we've never been quite sure how old VI is. And there was a theory. I know the VIologists had tracked her birth back to 1950. And then at some point that was revised upwards, downwards, so that she seemed to have been born around 1957. But that still makes her 60. (laughs) Yes, well, this is a very delicate question for me, Claire. When I started the series, I really wanted her to age in real time because who she is was shaped by her mother's history as an immigrant from fascist Italy and by the history that I shared of coming of age during the great social justice movements of the 60s and 70s. And for a while, that was fine. So we were both about 30 when the series started. And then I started having all these difficult physical problems and I never wanted VI to experience that, but I aged prematurely, we will say. And it occurred to me that the aging body is not designed for leaping over tall buildings, even with three bounds, let alone one bound. And also, as I get older and experience a lot of loss, I just, I didn't want to lose Lottie, and I didn't even want to lose Mr. Contreras. Although I did try to kill him in the sixth book, I think it was, 
I was just tired of him. He just starts talking and doesn't stop, and it's it's quite annoying. And so I, I shot him, and my husband, Courtney, was outraged when he read the draft. He said, you just can't do that. And you uh, couldn't have dogs without a Mr. Contreras right. figure, could you? Because it wouldn't be credible that with her lifestyle she could actually be responsible for dogs. Right. I mean, that's why she's never had a baby. I thought back when she was in her late 30s and into her 40s, I thought, baby, no baby. Would she put the baby out in the garden with the dogs for Mr. Contreras to mind? Would she get a Harley with a sidecar and plunk the baby into it? And in the end, I decided... Uh, too many chances of running afoul of, of the Department of Children and Family Services. So um, I left her childless. Now, the last time you came in was in 2010, and it's eight years later, and it is also now we have had a complete change of government. And I just wondered what Trump has done to VI, and you can see it in this novel. Yes, well, first of all, uh, let me say that I try never to use the name. It's not a Voldemort kind of issue. It's more that I see him like this giant bullfrog. And even here, sitting in this soundproof studio at King's Cross, and he's wherever he is playing golf, thousands of miles away. Somehow, if I say his name, he'll know through the ether, and his big bullfrog thing will start getting even more swollen. So I try not to add to that. But it's a serious issue, actually, joking about that aside. it's I don't know how to handle crime fiction in an age where so many laws are being violated and where there doesn't seem to be any recourse for the people whose whose lives are being trampled on. And that that just ranges. I mean, the immigrant situation is the most widely visible. Um, the Guardian actually covered a case of a man who was arrested and carried off for deportation while he was driving his wife to hospital. She was in labor to deliver their child. This happens every day in towns of every size all over the United States. And the immigration courts are controlled not by an independent authority, but actually by the administration. It's the one set of courts that the president and his attorney general appoint. So I could go on for days, and I won't, because then we'd both be weeping and jumping out of the window into the canal. But how how do you construct a crime novel when so many crimes are being committed that aren't punishable? It gives you this great symmetry between the unwanted immigrants who are part of the novel, but the very, very desirable art objects which are coming into the country, which are looted from the, the same places that the immigrants are coming from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this book had its genesis. The New Yorker some years ago had a story about these tax havens, and some are in Jersey and and in the British West Indies, some are in Geneva or Zurich and places like that. But I can't remember right now off the top of my head what they're called, but they actually have these massive warehouses that are they're like art museums where the hyper wealthy keep all of their their objects. Some are stolen, some aren't, 
but they're protecting their assets from the tax collectors, from spouses who might want to claim them as part of alimony, or just because they have that that kind of Scrooge or uh, Silas Marner kind of, yes, I need to be here and counting my Van Goghs. And it, it just, I don't know, I don't think I... I don't think I got my mind around it well enough to to really write about it that well, but but that was where the book started, and it actually, I started working on it before the last election cycle. I'm a slow worker. Doesn't make me a better worker, it just makes me a slower worker. And so, it, actually, the process of writing this got sort of turned over by the sort of immediate electoral history of the US, which I did wonder whether that was the case. Yes, and also, like many people, I was so depressed. I couldn't work for a while anyway. So um. then, so you've got these immigrants coming in from the Middle East, but you've also got a very interesting thing going on between the US and Canada. Yes, and that was, my husband actually was originally Canadian, so I may pay a little bit more attention to it than the average American does. But the the border that the administration is obsessed by is the southern border with, with Mexico. But the border with Canada has also now come in for a certain amount of scrutiny, but it's much more porous. And I have a cousin who's quite a outdoors woman, and she had taken me hiking along the Canadian-U.S. border in northern Minnesota. And you don't know where the There's certainly where the roads are. There's a border station. But then it's just all kind of tracks and and lakes, and and there are no roads. And if you don't know how to navigate through it, people people get lost and and die there because it, it is so very unmonitored. And so that just seemed to me to be a wonderful place to have some some interaction. I actually, without wanting to give away the story, but there is some action in the book set in those in that border country between the two countries. And a big chunk of it belongs to the Anishinaabe Indian nation. And there's a river that divides the country, the Pigeon River. So I was there in the winter and met some of the young people who were running an information center and talk to them about whether whether the nation was okay with me using their their lands and they sent my manuscript to the tribal elders who told me they read it much faster than anyone else did they turned it around in 3 days i was i was like wow no publisher would turn it around in 3 days but they said it was fine they corrected some of the language but they they had no problem with it and then i said so VI is in the river. Would you text your cousins on the Canadian side of the border to ask them to help her out of trouble? And the young woman, she was very funny. She said, well, you know, 65 cents to text to Canada for a white woman. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, so, so I thought that was, that but, was nice. <laughs> it's very, they're usually, the novels are very, very strongly set in Chicago. So it's a very, VI lives a very metropolitan life. And I thought this was really interesting, the fact that you've moved it up country, you've moved it into a, a location which has a deeper history than the, the history that VI embodies, which is sort of Polish-Italian immigration in the early right. 20th century. Yes, and one of the things about that was that that's not her comfort area. So 
it was a way of getting her off balance. She had to be able to manage in countryside that she didn't know with an environment that was alien to her and with with people that she whose history she couldn't possibly begin to understand. And I always think that these these movies where some punk kid gets dumped out of a car into the ghetto and proves himself to be the toughest punk white kid, the toughest kid on the block, I think, yeah, right, let's let's do that as a real-life experiment. And so VI doesn't, you know, she doesn't prevail easily in this environment. She prevails almost by luck more than skill, um, the kindness of strangers. And you also do have a sense in this novel of her body being you know, she she is aging a bit, isn't she? She's she, sadly. <laughs> will you? Will she ever retire, or will you just carry on, carry on? You know, that's a good question. I hope I never retire because I don't know. My identity is so bound up in being a writer, not just of these books, but being a writer. But oh, I don't know. Some years ago, maybe a decade ago. Oh, where does all the time go? I actually experimented with two different characters around whom I imagined I might build a different series. One was a young forensic engineer, which is a field that I've never seen exploited in crime fiction, but these are the people who go into accident scenes and analyze whether they were deliberately caused and and find out the actual cause, industrial accidents or train wrecks or anything like that. And the other was uh, actually a Chicago police detective. And the characters just didn't come alive for me. I wrote short stories about them, and they were published in different anthologies, but they just, I didn't feel engaged by the characters. And VI really is, when I write crime fiction, as opposed to general fiction, she just is the voice for me in the world. It may have to do with with the fact that we grew up together, so to speak, and she speaks about the issues of power and powerlessness and power relations that are kind of at the heart of my own personality. And I think that she also represents a female conscience. And another of the issues that's under the surface is the abuse of young women, isn't it? Which is very, both very topical, but it's also very much been at the heart of what VI has fought against (laughs) all her career. One of the things that I am very bothered by in contemporary crime fiction is the the kind of uh, pornographic or deliberately exploitative description of of sexual assault, sexual trafficking, the abuse of children, serial killers. And I didn't set out to include that in in this novel. I think it's it's very tricky. It's a massive issue, but I don't think it's one that it's easy to write fiction about without becoming exploitative. And so I hope I stayed on the left side of the tightrope, so to speak. The This is what happened, but we're not going to go into a lot of chapter and verse on what happened. And the Chicago School of Architecture says less is more. 
So less is more. And that is in a way partly what very good genre fiction is about, isn't it? Is knowing that less is more and pursuing that aesthetic. Yes, at least in my opinion. And long may you continue to do so. Thank you. (laughs) The legendary Sarah Paretsky. Always a huge pleasure to catch up with her. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. So Claire, before, when we started the podcast, you were talking about how your ancient heart was swelled a few times when you were talking to this next author and he uh, rekindled desire. Can you tell us a little bit about your chat with Andre Asserman? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, like most people, came late to Andre, although he is a Call Me By Your Name is the novel that most people will know him for, but they will know him for it, most of us through the film which mm. came out last year and was highly tipped for an Oscar I love but... that film it's like one of my favourite films that came out last was year was it? yeah I, um, I, I don't know there was something I, I, I usually have a problem with some film adaptations that they don't capture the interior life of characters um, in... do you love anime gaming movies and discovering how your favourite pop culture affects everything you do then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is... Another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. In the same way that a book just inherently can because of the nature of the form, but that film just it captured so much so often with so little dialogue like there would be scenes particularly the final shot of that film where the camera basically stays completely focused on uh, Timothée Chalamet's face for the duration of the credits and I swear not one person left that room even though there were credits and it, the, the shot wasn't changing there was nothing happening everyone sat there in silence and just watched his face and it's because there was just this it was so successful, I think, in capturing the characters' interior lives in a visual way. And so I loved it. So, in fact, this is the nerdy point. Jay, he, uh, Andre didn't actually write the, the screenplay. It was James Ivory, who yes. then went on to win a prize for it, which must have been a bit gaudy. Well, in fact, he's very generous, as you'll hear in the interview, about the fact that James Ivory <laughs> ran away with the writing credits. But it has to be because it was such a good... Like, I went and read the book afterwards, and I loved the book as well, but it was they were so well paired together. There was no disconnect, I think, between the two of them in some ways that you find sometimes with, with other books and their adaptations. Um, so he should be super happy. <laughs> 
So he he has been described as the acute grammarian of desire. I mean, there's a little bit of, it's sort of interesting to think of a grammarian of desire. You would have thought that desire and grammar are not exactly (laughs) bedmates, but there you go. And so Call Me By Your Name was written back in 2007. He's obviously been you know, busy since then. But this most recent novel, Enigma Variations, is particularly current because it's not a gay novel, particularly. The, Paul is flexible and he has lovers who are female and lovers who are, who are male over the period of a life. And it's divided up into five sections. And again, I think, you know, maybe it's just the stage I'm at that I think it's very interesting to look at how desire changes over the course of a life mm. and in sort of absolutely not just in the superficial way of whether you you know how much you have sex and things but also absolutely what it means about your personality and how it accrues resonance with back reference to everything that's ever happened before. And in fact, the first story has Paul going back to the village where he was obsessed with a cabinet maker, carpenter. And so so it's playing, it's like a sort of, it is like a, a violin playing two tunes. And one is the nostalgia of going back to it. And the other is the sort of Proustian, in a way, memory of what it was like to be very young and infatuated with someone who was totally unobtainable Mm. for reasons which then are very cleverly revealed. I mean, that's the thing that I think is possibly, probably second only to writing sex, is the hardest thing to write, is to write a genuine sense of longing into a book. Because I think there's nothing more compelling than a genuine sense of longing between two characters. There's really nothing that actually makes me want to read more when, when an author nails that. But Longing and sex are basically the hardest things to do. And Andre's very good at both, actually, because I'm thinking about this because uh, this week we're getting the Bad Sex uh, in Fiction Awards. The winner is going to be announced. And uh, I was reading some of the nominated passages today and they're very bad. And as I was reading it and I knew we were going to be recording and talking about Andre, I kept thinking, like, he does such an amazing job because it's very easy to do a bad job. Yeah. And actually, I've also been thinking about it in the context of Sally Rooney, who mm. I, I had to nip over to Dublin to interview, as you do. Um, <laughs> and she also writes so interestingly yeah. about sex and desire. And um, and yeah, so maybe that's something that when you're my age and coming up to a birthday, <laughs> you suddenly become, you've suddenly become interested <laughs> in it. When you hit your centenary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Andre came into the studio and met with Claire and he begins with a reading from Enigma Variations. And yet my life started here and stopped here one summer long ago, in this house which no longer exists, in this decade which slipped away so fast, with this never love that altered everything but went nowhere. You made me who I am today, Nanni. Wherever I go, everyone I see and crave is ultimately measured by the glow of your light. If my life were a boat, you were the one who stepped on board, turned on its running lights, and was never heard from again. All this might as well be in my head, and in my head it stays. But I've lived and loved by your light alone, in a bus, on a busy street, in class, in a crowded concert hall, once or twice a year, whether for a man or a woman, my heart still jolts when I spot your lookalike. We love only once in our lives, my father had said, sometimes too early, sometimes too late. The other times are a bit too deliberate. 
Andre, I'm really interested in that statement, this never love which altered everything but went nowhere, which echoes through this novel, well, this series of whether it is a novel or a series of stories, we'll come to that in a little while, but also through Call Me By Your Name, which is the novel which has made you particularly famous in the last couple of years. And yet, you know, there you are, you have these big statements and then you undercut them by having five love affairs in this Enigma Variations. Well, the, the never love is the love that we aspire to all through our lives. There are loves particularly that won't take place, that never happened and will go nowhere. And yet they define everything we are and will become. It's usually it's usually starts early in childhood, you might say, where we have a, a yearning for someone which we don't know whether it's erotic or not, whether it's love or not. We have no idea. But it defines how we relate to others for the rest of our lives. If it is a love or a crush, if you want to call it that, it's the portrait of everyone we will fall for in the rest of our lives. We will fall for them probably more powerfully than when we were children. And we, we may even forget the person that we had our first crush for. But the grammar of our behavior doesn't change. We don't learn anything, in other words. When I started reading this, although it's about Paul, it's mm. a different character to Elio in Call Me By Your Name, I thought of them as the same character. I was thinking, ah, oh, Elio is 17 and he was at the point of first consummation. Elio is five years younger and he's at the point where it can't be consummated or it isn't. He doesn't know a thing. He has absolutely no idea what involve what what consummation is or what it will involve he does not know but he feels the yearning and i wanted to capture that particular um sort of that purgatory call it of of not knowing what it is that you're feeling and where is it going so in a sense yes it is probably the same character because the author happens to be the same person and he is basically sort of dumping his whole identity on paper and trying to resolve this conundrum called desire, called whatever you want to call it. So you have this very intense first, first, it's really a novella, isn't it? It's quite long. It is a novella, yes. It's a novella. And then in the third one, you have another very equally intense, very adolescent monologue, the, the most sort of fetid monologue in a way of, of, of the five stories. Is, um, and it's called Manfred, and yes. Manfred is the object of Paul's obsession at this stage. And this, by this stage, Paul's in his 20s. Might be a bit older a bit than older 20, than 20s, yes. is he? And yet he's still in this adolescent totally. yearning place. We, well, we, I said we never change. We, we just grow older, but we don't learn. And I, I, I mean, it would be lovely if we learned from our mistakes or, from, or know, knew more about ourselves. But we don't. I don't think we do. We claim we do. But uh, he's yes, he has a crush on Manfred and he doesn't know what to do because he just has no way of addressing, of speaking to this person whose locker happens to be a few lockers away from his. So they're in the, the locker room of a tennis club and they're seeing each other naked every day. And yet there's no ability to speak to the other person. And then in the fifth of the stories, he's in old age and he has another crush, but this time it's on a, a young woman. It is a young so woman. So it bookends his well, erotic life. It, in a sense it does, but uh, if you look at the first story, which is, the, uh, they're all novellas. He has a crush on a cabinet maker, he's 12 years old, and the cabinet maker at some point tells him, why don't you just go home, go home. 
and he goes home sort of with his tail between his legs, feeling sort of totally discomforted. And at the very end, she doesn't tell him go home, but he decides, okay, I might as well go home. This is never going to happen. And he walks back home to his wife, feeling exactly the way he had felt when he was 12 years old. Now, this Paul Elio character Mm. is bisexual. Is he bisexual or is he episodic? I mean, I was really intrigued by that. And I was wondering whether you had had any issues with identity politics, with identity groups. Issues with identity. No, people have not given me any trouble, actually. That's the irony of the whole thing. I don't like identities. I, I hate a person who claims to have one identity and just one. Usually we have many more than just two. We have many identities and we sort of swerve from one to the other, constantly vacillating. And uh, and I believe that's where Paul is. I think the term nowadays, it, these terms keep getting invented all the time, is polyamorous. In other words, you're able to fall in love not only with two sexes, but more than one person at the same time, which I think is totally possible and totally plausible for me because you can have many crushes simultaneous. It's very intensely sustainedly erotic your writing yes i think it why is. why is this what is this is this your project i don't think i have a project or a mission uh, call it i just i i feel drawn to the subject not of sex itself but of desire because if you take away desire from our lives we're really quite dull uh, there's nothing left We want other people. We don't want just a nice new car or a new home or a new travel to a different place. We want other people and we want to touch them. We want to be held by them. We want them. Now, we may not want them for more than five minutes. We may not want them for more than a year or we may want them forever. And if we don't get them, they define the rest of our lives. We don't know. There is no timetable for these things. But I think desire is for me, is the most powerful feeling that one can have. It's stronger than love. It's stronger than loyalty. It's stronger than so many other things. I couldn't work out in the end whether I thought it was rich, his emotional life, or bleak. (laughs) It's bleak because in the final story, we gather during the course of it that he has teamed up with Manfred, but then by the end, Manfred's living in a different country and it's a different story, but there's a sort of friendship. But he's a solitary figure the end of his life as he was at the beginning of his life he's solitary but he has a very very sort of happy marriage which is strange where they basically confide in each other and you have no idea if he's going to tell her about this latest cross she had for this young woman Uh, you don't know if he's going to speak about her or not you just know that he's going to mention her I don't know. You're right. Lives are bleak or filled with wonderful things, Uh, the sense of plenitude that you have in life. But we have both. We are lonely and we are social simultaneously. And we feel probably quite bleak and at the same time quite happy in in our bleakness, if you wish. So we, we, we don't have... I hate using the words themselves, happy, sad, bleak, and so forth, because they fossilize the whole... The, the gamut of emotions that we feel constantly all day long. You like a place and then you hate it. I opened my window this morning, love London. Five minutes later, I come back from breakfast, which was not terrific, and I say, oh, God, I don't really like this place. Now I'm in the street, I like it again. Uh, this is me. And I'm very interested that you've sort of littered this conversation with spoilers. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. Does it worry you? I mean, I, I, in a way, they're not. I was, I, I'm, I'm always interested in the issue of spoilers because people are neurotic about them. 
But in a way, it's unspoilable, isn't it? Because you, well, they're, they're because so it is a, a, a sort of a series of enigma variations. The enigma continues, whatever the variation happens yes. to be at the time. No, the, the, the spoilers are minuscule because it's not, are they going to sleep together or are they not? It's how will they live with this for the rest of their lives? What are they going to do with it? I'm much more interested in the internal life, which is filled with plot, as opposed to the actual plot of, did they get married at the end and lived happily ever? after. That's not what interests me. In your other life, you're mm. a professor at New York yes. University and Proust is one of your specialisms. Is, am I right in saying? Yes, I teach Proust. You teach Proust. It's quite Proustian. Yes, it is Proustian. Unfortunately, yes, I have to say it is, but quite different at the same time. Tell me about the influence of Proust and also, the, you know, this is sizing up to a very big guy, isn't it? Yes, but you can also fail when you size up to a genius. Uh, He is a genius. The Proust, if you want to call it influence, I don't know that it is, but it's a particular way of looking at the world as it basically assumes that the world is not what it seems, that others are not what they seem, that nothing is open and shut. It's always open and there's interpretation goes on forever. You're always interpreting because that's what I do all day long. I look at someone and I'm trying to interpret them. To understand can they hurt me? Can they not hurt me? Should I trust them? Should I not? And so on. Uh, this is one of the Proust, one of the many Proustian sort of tricks that you pick up is that you don't need a plot because the real plot occurs in your head as you're investigating the world around you. The second thing that Proust does, which is also very important to me, and they coincide, I think, is memory. Proust is writing not only from memory, but is obsessed with memory. So he's constantly returning to something that already happened, that he thought he had understood and realizes, oh no, she was already cheating on him when they were totally in love with one another. And guess what? She wasn't cheating with a man. She was cheating with a woman. And oh my God, and that woman that she was cheating with was cheating on her as well. I didn't know this. Why did I even assume that I could understand what their relationship was like when I knew absolutely nothing? And I may be still wrong now. (laughs) <laughs> that just makes me laugh because you've got all those things in your stories, haven't yes, you? All those, yes. all those things. It's not just Proust either. You, there's a conversation with Edith Wharton. Yes. There's a conversation with L.P. Hartley, who's the, the yes. great coming-of-age novel. That was my coming-of-age novel. It I was is, that, that, that it was age. mine too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yes, Hartley is wonderful. And, the go-between uh, we're talking about. Yes, and, and of course that first sentence in the book is absolutely fantastic. They do things differently there in the past. And of course the past is there open for us to recombobulate it however we want. And that's what he does. Uh, the past is a foreign country. Yes. They do things differently there because you have also got in your fiction the foreignness. That's something we haven't talked about. There's a, always a sense of being, well, I suppose perhaps more in Call Me By Your Name, a sense of being slightly outside a culture. Yes. And observing it in a, from, a, from a slightly removed position. Yes. And of course, you're removed from the culture or from the world around you or from the people who are your friends. You're always dislodged somewhat because, first of all, you may have an identity that's different than theirs. And in my case, it's the Jewish identity, which makes you already a foreigner among others who are in that little town in Italy. Everybody's Catholic, of course. So you're the only Jew. So you learn not to proclaim that you're Jewish, which gives you this little edge. On you're always on the periphery. And again, in my life, I was always not an Italian in Italy, not a Frenchman in France. You grew up in Egypt. Yes, and I was certainly not an Egyptian in Egypt. So I, I was always in the wrong place. 
So that also gives you a perspective that is slightly sort of bifurcated constantly. You're looking at two things simultaneously, yourself elsewhere and yourself in the wrong place. And both Elio and Paul, they're real aesthetes, aren't they? That's the other thing, they're aesthetes. Oh, yes. This is something about... When you say this is about you, all your different identities, that's part of your identity. Well, the well? only way you can make yourself whole, partly whole, you can never make yourself whole, uh, is by finding some kind of world that to which you refer that is almost perfect. And in that case, it's the world of art. It could be music, it could be literature, but these are very powerful sort of modalities in their lives that govern them and give them a sense of Paul and Elio. It gives them a sense of, yes, I still belong to Earth because I like classical music, I like Beethoven, I like Bach. So I couldn't be totally sort of an alien here. Uh, But it is through the mechanism of high art that they find their footing. Now, Call Me By Your Name was published in 2007. Mm. And then 10 years later suddenly became this huge international hit through a film for which James Ivory won Best Screen Adaptation. How does that feel to you, your novel being getting a prize for someone else? Uh, <laughs> no, no, actually, he, he was very, very generous. James was wonderful because as soon as he got the Oscar, he went there to the podium and the first thing he said is, I owe this to Andre Asselman. So I was very happy and I was there. So it, it, it filled my heart. And the, I, I can't find a better expression than to say, I'm very happy with the film. I'm very happy with the success of the film. The fact that people sort of clamor when when they see me and when they read my book, they send me emails every day. I get emails and tweets infinitum. Uh, So I'm very happy with that. At the same time, my anxieties go with the present project, which is another book, which is an, another series of essays that I'm writing. And and so your mind is in, really in the future as opposed to sort of, sort of doing something, reaping those accolades. I, I don't know what to do with them, but it's wonderful that it happened. I mean, I know that people remind me constantly, you should be happy. Yes, I am happy, but I'm worried about this thing coming up. <laughs> Andre Asiman there. Enigma Variations is published by Faber and Shell Game by Sarah Paretsky is with Hodder and Stoughton. Next week, we have a prose poem special featuring the indomitable Claudia Rankin. Until then, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts and join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. Happy birthday, Claire. Oh, well, thank you for giving me my choice of of (laughs) books, because in this job, as you know, although we love reading, we do often have to read things we wouldn't necessarily choose. So it is a a great pleasure to be able to go with It is the ugly reality of our wonderful jobs that we have to read rubbish books sometimes, (laughs) but it is very nice. Not that we actually ever feature them on this podcast. Yes, there's a lot of selective editing. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of reading that doesn't make it onto the show. (laughs) 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 So my birthday's in March. Am I getting a pod? We might consider it. Yeah. We'll have to have words with Susanna, but I don't, I'm not sure you've, you've quite earned it as well as I have. What? When's Richard's birthday? <laughs> I don't know whether he reveals that sort of thing. <laughs> anyway, for now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane, And our producer, Susanna Chazillian. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.